Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to another episode of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a writer, cinematographer, and director in his own right, an important part of the massive Friday the 13th Part 2 episode of Blue Hip and the Nashville half of Nashville CA. Please welcome Josh Ickes. Hey, man. How's it going, George? It's going great over here. Very excited about today's episode and stoked to have you back. I am excited to be here. I... Didn't think that I would get to talk about this movie with anybody on a podcast, so this is really fun. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm very stoked about it. We're finally talking about a Philadelphia area icon today, M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, I understand you're a fan of his beyond this movie, is that right? Yes. Okay. So, you know the band Weezer, right? Yeah, I'm familiar. You're familiar with Weezer. And for years, I would tell people, Weezer never made a bad album, you changed. <laughs> like... If they got the same radio play, there would still be like people at 16 going, this is what I needed, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're <laughs> a great gateway drug. And that's how I feel about most M. Night Shyamalan films. Wow. Like I, I will defend most of what he's done, Avatar notwithstanding. Yeah. Hey, in this house, we respect M. Night as well. I haven't seen every single one of his movies, but I like a lot of the ones that I have seen, even ones that aren't always the popular choices. You know, uh, I like glass. I like old mm-hmm. and not everyone likes old, but the beach makes you old. What's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> There are shots in old that are just astonishing to me. Like, oh yeah, I just love that he took this goofy premise and then put this high art sheen on it, which is kind of what he does. Oh yeah, I should say beyond the fact that I think it is a fun and silly premise, I do like yeah. a lot of the actual artistry of old. As okay. Well. <laughs> But why don't you tell us a little bit about, I know we we talked on the Friday the 13th episode, we kind of did a, a quick overview of everyone's uh, history with horror, but mm-hmm. I want to give you a chance to, uh, to remind the people sort of how it all started for you. Oh, man. Like, it would have to go back to my parents first renting. We rented a VCR from the public library. Nice. Like, libraries. Before, we love them. Yes. <laughs> I stand libraries. My local library has a new limited edition library card thing that I'm oh. going to go pick up this weekend. I'm excited. It says, I read banned books. Oh, hell yeah. That's pretty badass for a library. Oh, yeah. But I remember my parents renting this. And at first, we had a, a beta player for a while uh, and then switched to VHS. But all through there, right, there, there's these underlying pinnings of horror movies even in something like in indiana jones movies you have these terrifying sequences that were always like super interesting to me yeah and i remember from there my mom showing me psycho because that was one of her big favorites and introduced me to alfred hitchcock and the birds and i mean you're off to the races from there right like when you are allowed to browse the the shelves i don't know what your local was called mine was the tapeworm and the tapeworm two because they were spun off from a, a used bookstore called the bookworm yeah so when they got tapes they called it the tapeworm logically <laughs> <laughs> marketing be damned but you know i would go and, and browse those racks and just all those covers i know you've heard this over and over again but those things just sear into your brain way more than like i'm sure the regarding henry has a great box art image but it doesn't spring to mind the way that chud does you know right it's not as evocative folks no yeah i i think that that makes a lot of sense i think that you know 
the the shocking imagery that is so evocative in horror movies that's what you slap on the cover and and you're right that it just doesn't happen in you know your merchant ivories <laughs> stuff like that and there's something about when you're a kid especially like there wasn't a whole lot of kids fair this would have been mm-hmm. the early 80s there wasn't a whole lot being a child wasn't marketed to the same way that it is now. So you very quickly would find yourself in like the young adult readers section of the bookstore. Sure. And I think that horror was a place that seemed childish in a lot of ways. Yeah. And an exuberance. Yes. I couldn't understand like a heavy drama, but I could definitely go in for some people running around the woods getting killed like that's yeah. what I, that's what you play with your friends like it's yeah. so similar yeah like, yeah i can get down with with horror and action movies like that's where go. it all comes from <laughs> well today's pick yeah it's interesting i mean this is a great one i'm very excited to talk about it we're talking about a movie that probably is in the middle of the filmography of m night for a lot of people and i think it has to do a lot with the environment that it came out into but we're here to say today that the village from 2004 is the best horror movie ever made hell yeah hell yes it's very funny for me looking sort of at the m night timeline and seeing the movies that don't always get mentioned for example wide awake Stuart little which he wrote but didn't direct Mm -hmm. and the punch-up that he did for she's all that (laughs) (laughs) you know nobody ever mentions she's all that yeah it's a great movie and yeah, Robert Iscove was like, who's directed uh, She's All That, was like, yeah, he did, he did a lot of great punch-up and polishing on it. So, hell yeah, uh, M. Night. And I don't know how quickly we want to delve into this, but this was at the height of his his powers as far as being able to put a project together. Oh, yes. M. Night, he had really broken out in 1999 with The Sixth Sense, and he'd followed it up with Unbreakable, two absolute heaters. And Signs is also critically lauded. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when this movie is getting put together, he's being hailed as the next Spielberg by not just one news publication, but dozens. Uh, Newsweek is is not even a question mark saying the next Spielberg, uh, the savior of cinema. And so when this movie held for them the first signs, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) that... (laughs) That he wasn't absolutely bulletproof. It feels like people really turned on him in a way that feels vindictive almost. You know, we as Americans, or maybe just as people, but uh, I speak from the Western point of view here, right? We love to put people up on pedestals. And then take them and, down, baby. And then tear them down. That's it. You just wait for them to fall once they're up there. Yeah. And a big part of the problem, in addition to just this putting them up on a pedestal, is that M. Knight has a very distinct style. And people get tired of that, especially when it's coming out pretty frequently. You know, you see this in how people react to Wes Anderson as well. They tell very different stories, but it's all the same because it has their thumbprint on it, which to me is a feature and not a bug for both Mm -hmm. gentlemen. And I have to say, getting to see the past, I guess, three or four years, the show that he shepherds, uh, Servant, on Apple+, Plus, getting to see everybody else like take his style and play with it is so much fun. Because it is... It's these these pulpy themes, but they're taken like deadly seriously. He's a very earnest filmmaker. He's a very earnest man. Like, yeah, he just seems like somebody who really is like he's probably incapable of telling a lie. (laughs) 
when he says that he thinks that this is the coolest thing he's made, he's telling you the truth. Like he thinks that these are great ideas that he's having and there's not a lot of duplicity there. And I think that that's uh, once again, like that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, definitely. And I think that this is hitting a lot of the M night hallmarks. You know, you got a somber mood for a lot of it, uh, a sense of loftiness and of menace kind of just off screen. The loss of faith happens of course. And of course the twists, We got to talk about the twists, because while I would not say that I am actually precious about spoilers, Mm -hmm. I would say that typically I try and go into movies knowing as little as possible, avoiding trailers even, if possible, uh, for stuff that I know that I want to see. Okay. But I kind of grew up just behind M. Night. You know, I was young enough to have basically every movie that he put out (laughs) spoiled for me in advance just from a thousand times over just from their place in pop culture because they were so ubiquitous and 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 loomed so large in the public eye everyone was talking about them and so uh, as a younger man they just got talked about even if i had been into horror at the time which as i've said before i was not right (laughs) but it's been very interesting for me to see how little knowing the twists have impacted my enjoyment of his movies. You know, something like The Sixth Sense, I was sure that I was not going to enjoy it because I already knew what was going to happen. And it turns out, that movie fucking rocks. (laughs) (laughs) It is a stately drama apart from having that killer twist. Yeah. And that was one that I was on a date the first time I saw that movie and called out the twist the second that the the prologue ends <laughs> just because i thought it was funny i was yeah. i was doing a mystery science theater 3000 riff you yeah. know on that whole thing and no it turned out my date turned to me she's like how'd you know i was like oh i just really got lucky on that one because i am horrible at figuring out twists in movies i just got lucky that one time wow there you go it's funny because i think actually knowing the twist to this movie in advance not only didn't bother me, but improves the movie. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, this is, a, this is controversial for, for <laughs> this show. I can see how this reveal might be a little underwhelming if I didn't <laughs> know going in. Uh-huh. I can see it. But because I did know going in, instead of treating it as a huge reveal it lends an interesting dynamic to all the whispered conversations and the torn motivations and everything. You can sort of see where the emotions are coming from from the beginning instead of having to be like trying to figure out the puzzle piece. Right, and all of the... We get all of these stories of people's traumas repeated throughout the piece, and in context, they make... A lot more sense emotionally and narratively yeah if you know that twist if you don't you're seeing them and you're left like when you get to the twist you're left kind of going back and trying to pick up the pieces right and i do think it is stronger like even if you started the movie from an outside perspective knowing what was happening I think that the drama of the movie would carry because yeah. you realize how damaged and how how needing of a safe place these people are. Definitely. And I also pulled this quote from Dag Sodtholt, 
whose article I greatly enjoyed, and he said, Complaints about the twist being unsatisfactory is revealing as to the barrier against looking at his films as works of art, as if 95% of every film is merely a setup, trundling along towards its ending, the entire reason for the film to exist. This is a rather childish way to look at narrative art, particularly with a film like The Village, packed as it is with ideas, meaning, and beauty. Would a personal dislike of what Rosebud finally is revealed to be invalidate the whole body of Citizen Kane? Wow. I like that that take. Yeah. Because I remember at the time I said something very similar about the twist in this movie, because I remember coming out of the theater and being like, wow, that didn't need to be, it didn't need to be a twist, but I love the context of it. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Can't argue with that. Yeah. And so M. Night wrote and directed The Village with Roger Freaky Deaky Deacons <laughs> on the camera. <laughs> This guy is unbelievable, knows how to use light like nobody else. He's so good with the Coen Brothers movies, and this is just another accolade. He fits perfectly with M. Night because they're both very tonal. They both use a lot of color in their uh, in their work. I think that it's a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. I wanted to call that out, like especially as we kind of go through here, but just off the jump, the usage of in the village we have – greens and browns and blue playing on our our main character right but the yellow and the red that we see they both pop so much those oh, yeah. yellow cloaks i want one of those cloaks as badly as i want one of the <laughs> uh one of the fellowships cloaks right nice yeah yeah yeah, yeah they're really fun and they definitely pop um 300 men and women built this town a lot oh of work gosh. went into it <laughs> And they worked along with the costuming department to make sure that it looked natural without being overly sober. I know that I said that there is sort of a, you know, stateliness, a little bit of a, a seriousness to the movie. But it, it there is fun. It is it, like it, it's a beautiful little valley and everything. I think that they do a good job of avoiding the over sobriety of it. Mm-hmm. It's also an incredible cast. I mean, they wanted a lot of theater actors so that they could do longer takes. And they put people into a boot camp situation where they learned to actually live that way. It was very funny seeing Sigourney Weaver like blacksmithing <laughs> in the behind the scenes footage. <laughs> But Joaquin Phoenix said that everybody felt that it was really beneficial to sort of divest themselves from their contemporary lives and go into this boot camp. And I noticed when those opening credits come up, you go about 14 credits deep before there's names that I don't recognize. Yeah. Like this cast is stacked. It has right. so many people playing in these small roles or early part of their career that definitely Jesse Eisenberg, I remember yeah. at the time I was like, He's the brother. He's the brother of the little Pepsi girl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Franz Kranz is in there from yes. Cabin in the Woods shows up. Unbelievable. Judy Greer. Oh, Judy. Amazing. Uh-huh. Well, let, let's get into this cast because we start off with Bryce Dallas Howard, who she had done a few small roles up to this point, but M. Night saw her portraying Rosalind in As You Like It in New York, and he didn't even audition her. He said, you're Ivy Walker, uh, who is the blind daughter of Edward Walker. Like you said, we have Judy Greer as her sister Kitty, Joaquin Phoenix as Lucius Hunt, and Adrian Brody as Noah Percy, perhaps the role that aged the least gracefully, mm-hmm. but they they round out the main cast of Young Villagers. Although the guard, Fenton, is played by Michael Pitt from Funny Games. I was like, what the <laughs> heck? I wasn't expecting to see this guy again so soon. <laughs> what a great name, Fenton Coyne. Oh, love it. 
lot, yeah. of, a lot of great names in this movie. Yeah. We also have our main elders, uh, William Hurt as Edward Walker, who I already mentioned, Sigourney Weaver as Alice Hunt, who is Joaquin Phoenix's character's mother, and Cherry Jones as Mrs. Clack, and Brendan Gleeson as August Nicholson. It's a tiny role for, for Brendan, but man, he is just so great all the time. That's one of those where you just cast him and you know you're done. Like, <laughs> that's your whole work. Like, all right, he's going to sit there and be jolly and old-worldy and just fit in, and it's going to be great. Oh, yeah. Now, those we don't speak of uh, actually had kind of a really cool, almost annihilation bear look at first. <laughs> but <laughs> when they scaled it up, they were like, uh, it actually looks silly on a human being. Seeing the footage, I am inclined to agree, but the models truly were rad as hell. Mm -hmm. And as they are, they're kind of Morlocky, dark side of humanity kind of thing. Humanoid, but, but also very creepy. I was reminded of the French movie... The wolves, um, what am I thinking of? An American werewolf in Paris. There you know. <laughs> <laughs> the one that's an action movie, it's from roughly the same era. Dog Soldiers. No, but that would be kick-ass. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's a similar design, like with the, the spikiness of it, mm -hmm. and kind of the hunched, where you can't tell if it's animalistic or humanistic. Right. You know, pretty much most of the way through it, which I think is... Just a really cool design. Definitely. Now, like I said, many, though not all, of the critics had sort of castigated the movie for the twist. So, you know, we got to check in with old Raj again. <laughs> <laughs> he gave this movie one star Oof. and started the review with the sentence, The Village is a colossal miscalculation, a movie based on a premise that cannot support it, a premise so transparent it would be laughable were the movie not so deadly solemn. But... This is surprising to me, actually, because mm -hmm. he loved signs, which is just as absurd and maybe more absurd. I would say the the central uh, thesis of signs does not hold together as well as this one does, personally. Sure. Also, I mean, at some point, you can be willing to accept that these people have just like are overlooking minor plot holes in the story. Yes. But truly, I tried so hard to not care about how dumb it is that these aliens are killed <laughs> by water when they come to a planet that is so much water and right. rain is such an observable phenomenon. Like in the War of the Worlds, it's like I get it. There aren't clouds dropping colds on people all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> to just look at Earth and see all the rain clouds happening all the time and go, this seems like a good idea. I don't know. It just it, it feels like such a huge plot hole that I have a tough time accepting it in a way that I usually try to not care about plot holes. <laughs> the saving grace of signs for me would be when Mel Gibson is eating and crying at the same time. <laughs> it's one of my favorite acting pieces. Everybody's gonna eat. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, look, this is this, this is not to say that I hate that movie. I think there's oh, no. a lot a lot of good stuff in it. That is just the thing that kind of brings it down for me. But and, oh, and to, to that point, this is just why it's crazy that like if he can get past that, where is Raj stumbling here? Yes, with the premise of the village, <laughs> especially since I think the the central metaphor of the village is so strong, right? Even if you didn't buy into the particulars, the idea of it is so powerful. I could see yeah. another filmmaker 
basically tackling this same sort of story today. Yeah, definitely. Um, but he wasn't interested, and in fact, he named it his 10th worst movie of 2004. Oof. Yeah. That's brutal. Classic Raj. But despite the critics' best efforts, it was a commercial success, making $257 million on its budget of $60 million, although this and Wide Awake are the only two of M. Night's movies that have not gotten a Blu-ray release. Really? Yeah. How about that? I did not realize that. Yeah, I, I went looking for a Blu-ray. <laughs> it turns out they don't exist. <laughs> that is wild. See, it seems like it should be out there somewhere. You would think. You would yeah. think. Now, this is a particularly visual choice of movie, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of callbacks and mirror images kind of stuff. So I wanted to set up a few of the motifs that come back or things that might not directly fit into the flow of conversation, but I did want to call them out. Uh, first off is that this movie takes place during the changing of autumn to winter, which certainly feels deliberate, conjuring the fear of death, the starkness, the illusion falling apart. Second is to point out that this comes out in the aftermath of 9-11. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is a lot of uh, fear of insidious outsiders closing borders and retreating into isolationism born from trauma. It's kind of easy to read this as the United States, especially when at the very end we hear some talk about the Iraq war on the radio. There are also a bunch of interesting motifs. Uh, Hands are a major one, not only with Ivy being blind and using her hands to navigate, but also throughout, they're a symbol of comfort and connectivity that is distinctly subverted many times as fear of connections and the pain that they can bring. There's also a lot of chairs that are tied to loss. Often they're conspicuously empty, a reminder of the people who should be filling them. Uh, Lucius's father, for example, or they're filled with someone currently in grief, in shots with the box O secrets, that sort of thing. And the last one that really stood out to me is the harmony indicated with shots of groups of two or four, but whenever there is a group of three, dysfunction is close behind. Um, so just a few things that tend to come up in the movie in terms of visuals that, you know, maybe I can't call out every single instance of them, but even in moments where I am sort of brushing past the plot, there is a lot of symbolism and motifs happening. The chairs was one that I did not catch until this time, really. The colors motif is very obvious, and the hands, because there's such strong framing of them. But the chairs was a really beautiful one that struck me this time. Yeah, it's really, really well done, especially because there's a sort of sweet melancholy a lot of the time to it, where it does not necessarily feel like immediate loss all the time. Like I said, it feels like, oh, it's left empty, that, or you just see Brendan Gleeson like, rocking back and forth in his as he reminisces about his son. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of really great stuff in there. Now, let's, let's get into the actual movie. It starts off with these dark foreboding woods, uh, foreboding woods even, that get more hectic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we open up on August Nicholson weeping over his newly deceased seven-year-old son, Daniel's grave. And this shot is pretty clearly representational of the village at large. You know, the bereaved August is fenced in. He's uh, retreated from the rest of the world at large to lament the death of a loved one. But the fence is also trapping him in there with the grief. So it's, it's, you know, pretty, pretty clear sort of one-to-one comparison. But 
the tombstone indicates that it's nine or excuse me, 1897. At the wake, they question if they made the right choice to settle here, but are grateful for the time they're given. This is a a ritualistic sort of saying that they've clearly done over and over again, sort of a way to make themselves feel better about the shortened lifespans that they're dealing with. And I think that it's really great and interesting how much of the environment is set up so early. And again, it's the kind of thing where knowing the way that it shakes out and the efforts that the elders have been putting in makes that sort of melancholy come through from the word go. I wanted to call out the use of, I mean, for the most part, this is a lock it down, put it on sticks, or we're on a dolly type of movie. Yeah. But early on, we get the contrast when he is by himself in that grief, we get a quick handheld shot that is almost shaking as he is weeping over his shoulder, which I think is really effective and subtle use of the dynamics that you can get between those two different things. It's also where we get the first usage of the hand motif as he he reaches for William's Hurt's hand. Yep. Yeah. Right at the beginning of the, the movie. And you get... That sort of non-toxic male connection that these people are looking for in this intentional community is, I think, something to be lauded. Yeah, I think that the camera work is really spectacular in this particular section as well. I think that it is reflected later on where we don't, like you said, we don't get a lot of these sort of over-the-shoulder shots or uh, even the more directly aerial shot that looks Mm -hmm. down at him. And... It's interesting to see this character starting off with his back to us holding on to death and and sort of clinging to to his son and the way that that flips when we spoiler alert see Lucius <laughs> like laying in the bed facing up and it's another aerial shot he's clinging to life as best as he can you know he's got all the white on in the bed in the sheets it's an interesting dynamic in terms of what people are using as the thing to keep them going like clearly Brandon Gleason's character August is in the throes of grief he's clinging to death this is all he knows anymore his fa- he's the last member of his family the thing that he left <laughs> left the towns to uh-huh. avoid uh has has found him like he said sorrow will find you like a dog that's i also clocked those overhead shots because we get them here later on when everyone is hiding in a hole mm-hmm. literally towards the end that are very impactful of that same hole where we're looking down and there is something about that god's eye view that usage of it that he employs like just a couple times per act but it seems so pointed definitely so and this seems to be a pretty nice little town could be amish country even but there's a few little things that seem off first their eating is interrupted by the baying of some kind of animal or could you know could be whatever but also some younger women seem terrified to discover a red flower growing from under their home going so far as to tear it out and bury it and the town is, or the village, <laughs> is guarded at night from a tower facing the woods and a buttload of torches. Now, the school teacher, Mr. Walker, discovers the children staring at a mutilated and skinned rabbit, which leads to a bit of backstory. They're afraid of the monstrous, those we don't speak of, which is quite a mouthful, so I'm going to call them speakies. <laughs> I love it. There's also a bit of a clue to the twist, since 
contractions probably wouldn't be in usage in the late 19th century. So just the fact that they are calling them those we don't speak of instead of those we do not speak of is kind of a clue that they're using this faux old language. Really, really clever, really fun to have that the breadcrumbs kind of leading you along. But the speakies and the villagers have a truce. They don't go in the woods and the speakies don't come in the valley. At the meeting of the elders, Lucius comes in and he's clearly very nervous. His mother, Alice, is one of the elders and he makes sure to clarify that she knows nothing about his purpose there today, which is to ask permission to enter those same woods just established as part of the truce with the speakies. The staging of that with the the circle of the elders and him on the outside once again, like it places uh, him separate in the town and we get it called out later how he is different than the other boys, but also Ivy is separate from the town and with her loss of sight and her tomboyishness. And you can't help but triangulate these connections between the characters already. Definitely. Even Noah as well is sort of ostracized from the town mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, it, it feels like the quiet room was probably built for him. For, kind yeah. of. <laughs> yes. Now, the reason that he wants to go into the woods and to the towns is because Daniel died a preventable death of illness. And Lucius wants to go looking for medicines. And I love the way it just jumps forward to be like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I also think this is particularly interesting with the twist known because the elders will have greatly expanded lifespans compared to the rest of the village simply because they were inoculated against so many diseases from their life in the towns compared to those children who are reverting back to late 19th century lifespans. It's, you know, people say, oh, the hardest thing anyone could ever do is bury their child. And these people are purposely trying to avoid grief, but putting themselves in a situation where they will constantly have to go through the hardest thing anyone has had to do. The next day, there's another skinned animal. It's a fox this time, and they call everyone together where Alice says, hey, come on, we would know if a speaky got in here, because, spoiler, they would know if the speakies got in there. (laughs) (laughs) So it's got to be a wolf or a coyote that's suffering from madness. So everything's fine, but keep an eye on the tots. And as they leave... Kitty Walker talks with her father and says, oh, yeah, since we don't want to talk about this nasty killing stuff, how about this? I'm in love with Lucius Hunt. In fact, she wants to marry him, although he doesn't know it. And we got to talk about Judy Greer. We kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. hot dang, she is so good in this movie. Her little speech about how great love is as she reveals her feelings to Lucius is fantastic. And then for it to cut and it's just her (laughs) sobbing is like what a funny moment she does such a great job throughout the entire thing of playing it funny when it needs to be funny serious when it needs to be serious her naive puppy love towards lucius reflects the more uh or is you know compared to the more intense and deep love from ivy is also a reflection of noah percy and the way that he feels about ivy compared to Lucius, you know, mm-hmm. she is serving a purpose for the story, but still manages to feel like her own person as well in a way that does not always happen. And I think it's so impressive. You called out her her monologue, but it's one take. 
it is it's one shot it's one long shot as they're doing a walk and talk but the camera i believe comes around the side of a building and then settles and you see them like walk into the distance and she delivers this whole monologue and the wind is blowing and she's jumping up and down like she's filled with this youthful glee and then the switch the first edit from getting her dad's permission to saying oh hi lucius <laughs> it's so good and then that the cut to her just weeping Uh. oh my gosh that was i don't know who cut this movie but whoever did that is some spectacular spot-on editing really fantastic and like i said she's being comforted by her sister ivy who has a soothing way about her she also calms down noah percy who has some sort of behavioral disorder and it's clear that this is not the first time that she's done this although this moment also gives a look at the timeout room that locks from the outside it's it's just one of those things where it's like oh yeah not all the things in the quote good old days <laughs> so we're so good you know this this method of punishment is is grim and they race to the resting rock where lucius is you guessed it resting <laughs> one thing i wanted to bring up here and get your opinion on is that she sort of sets up the future betrayal in a way though she just extracted an agreement from noah not to strike people she breaks their agreement not to cheat in the race without a second thought proving that it's just part of the game and part of the illusion that he is seeing through Ooh, i had not considered that george there you go <laughs> i i really like that I think there is something to the idea that Noah, with his... It's never stated what Noah's particular affliction is, but we are led to believe that he has the mind of a child. In the parlance of the fake times that they're in, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And therefore would not understand the the differences of complexities of lying versus t- sparing someone's feelings or not hitting versus not cheating in the race he he would not be able to equate those two things at all right you know it's he he would draw the straight the straightest line between them and he looks there's a moment where when she first takes off and he's looking Mm -hmm. the other way and then when he notices he looks so upset for like for like two seconds and then the sort of glee of the hunt is back on and and he starts running after her but those little two seconds I thought really did a lot to sort of communicate how this really does feel like a betrayal to him. I'm not sure what all you found. I recall on the DVD, some of the special features showing Deacons setting up this extremely long dolly track Mm -hmm. for some of these shots that go from the village down into the woods. Right. And I remember the crew talking about how kind of excruciating it was (laughs) to get these (laughs) smooth, beautiful shots that they wanted because they're just gliding over the tops. Yeah. And they're not using Steadicam. They use dollies for almost everything. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Because when you want something done, you do it right. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Craftsmanship, sir. That's right. That's right. Now, Ivy tells Lucius, I know you turned my sister down because you're in love with me, which is a bold, bold thing to say, but turns out it's the truth. But they're interrupted when Noah hands her some berries, which Lucius reveals to be the bad color. Uh Uh-oh. 
That's right. These are red, too. And Ivy hastily covers them and says, this color attracts those we don't speak of. You must bury it. So, again, kind of ritualistic in in her tone. And Lucius gets nervous and asks where Noah got them from. And he didn't pick them right now because he pulled them out of his pocket. And Lucius has never seen those kind of berries before, where Noah says he got them from the wood. So now Lucius is like, oh, baby. It's time to go tell the elders that it's chill to go into the woods as long as you're innocent. (laughs) And again, they refuse him. Unbelievable. (laughs) And he weeps, saying this town is full of secrets, and I just want to help the villagers. (laughs) It's tough because I think without the foreknowledge of what the twist is, you don't you're not as torn Mm -hmm. because you only see his side, Lucy's side. You're like yes he is almost an adult ready to get married let him do some things yeah, <laughs> let him absolutely. take care of some shit once in a while <laughs> now these boxes are tucked away in every one of the houses that houses an elder supposedly they're the remnants of the evils of their former lives kept nearby as a reminder but he says edward walker is also hiding his feelings for alice now edward is married as well with those uh, with his two no, I think it's more than two children. I think he's got like five kids, but only two of them talk. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, Lucius is putting up some yellow on the trees while wearing a yellow poncho. Yellow presumably repels the speakies. That's uh, They never are outright like, oh, yeah, this repels them <laughs> because that would be terrible dialogue. But, uh, you know, you sort of pick it up. It feels representational of the sun. And obviously these guys come out at night. But, uh, yeah, it, it's just some some good work there. And Lucius stares into the woods and indeed strides in, breaking off a twig of the same red berries that Noah produced. He's startled by growls and movement, though, as we see just the tail of something vanishing, but he doesn't panic because he is fearless after all, and as promised to the elders, he strides back out just as confidently. He finds Ivy out, and we, we find out that the medicine may have prevented her loss of sight, but also, Kitty is engaged to Kristop now, so hint, hint, Ivy is free to receive interest from any who might have it. <laughs> this is, I think, a really fun moment where Ivy sort of steps into view a little more, you know, where you say, oh, it's not just going to be like about Lucius. It's going to be about the way that they interact together. I like the engagement subplot here. Like, first of all, for the visuals that it brings us later, but actually the idea that Kitty and Kristop are children. Yeah. We see in an earlier scene, Kristop is taunting Jesse Eisenberg's character as Jameson, right? Yeah. We see them like they're playing games, daring each other to go to the edge of the forest and stand with their back towards it. So that the speakies might sneak up on them. And then they're playing the, the wrestling and slapping games with right. Noah and everything. And you're like, These people should not be getting married yet. I'm sorry. (laughs) Back at the watchtower, Finton sees a red-cloaked figure enter the the village, and I love this dude's reaction of just like, oh, shit, and bawling up for a second. (laughs) (laughs) But he does ring the alarm bell, so everyone scatters for the cellar. Noah is stoked, though. They're coming. Lucius is outside waiting to make sure that Ivy is safe and he sees a speaky coming. Ivy can tell he's out there, though, and uses herself as bait to come inside just as a speaky approaches her, presumably with devourous intent. Great little deployment of slow-mo and this soaring music. 
And it also is the first time he has touched her since childhood. Again, this usage of hands and touching as a motif, this connection point between them. They've talked about how she knew that he was in love with her because he stopped touching her one day. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a really great moment. I think that they do such a spectacular job of imbibing it with romance in the middle of danger. So you mentioned the score sweeping in at this point. I did want to call out James Newton Howard. This score is one of my favorite movie scores. It's great. A lot of violin. Yes, the Hilary Hahn violin is so good like you said it's soaring but the fact that in the same year james newton howard did this movie hidalgo and collateral wow all those came out in the same year and i'm like that's impressive right there yeah Yeah. just bangers from from newton howard there (laughs) (laughs) the elders say that the markings a red slash on the door indicate that this was just a warning that they felt threatened lucius does confess though via note And Edward Walker kneels to comfort him, saying Lucius is fearless in a way he will never know. And this also foreshadows Edward's later line, the world moves for love. It kneels before it in awe. I think that it's just a nice little little forward motion illusion. Now we're at the wedding reception for Kitty, and Edward reflects the funerary opening, saying we're grateful for the time that we're given. And there's a pig sacrifice as well, tossed into the woods. And Ivy is chatting with an elder, but the conversation takes a bit of a darker turn when she says that her older sister was killed at 23 by a group of men outside their home before this elder came to Covington Woods. So again, this sort of thought that the anything outside of here, not just in the woods, is this terrifying and, and foreign place. It does seem like a fun party, though. These freaks can get down. Oh, my gosh. That party scene, it's so beautiful. I don't want to go to many parties in movies, but this one <laughs> looks pretty good. Like, Yeah. It's not so th- intense that you're like, that's too much. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it's interrupted by the sound of a scream that splits the night. It's some young boys, and they say they saw another speaky leaving more warnings. What the heck? Get out of here, they said. <laughs> This time, there are lots of strung up rabbits in a doorway. M. Night loves to frame stuff through a doorway. I noticed this a lot in Signs as well. But in this movie, it seems to be pretty symbolic of truth and understanding. uh, And it will uh, definitely come back up in our discussion. There is going to be an inquest, apparently. Love an inquest. (laughs) Lucius tells Ivy when she asks how he holds the record for the stand with your back to the woods game. He says he doesn't worry about what will happen, only what needs to be done, which it could be argued was also the thought process for the elders when they moved to Covington Woods and started this whole thing. The end of the the party scene into the inquest, we get very quickly, once again, Lucius takes Ivy's hand, and this time there's no buildup. It's just like a matter of course that he should take her hand the second time and that he is going to protect her, right? But she is leading the way. Mm-hmm. And we get that repeated when later her father talks about her leading the way when others can't, mm-hmm. when others can only follow. And so both of these characters, her and Lucius, are set up as kind of the strongest moral fiber that is left in this community. Definitely. And this is also where Lucius does confess his love for her. It's a very sweet moment. He says they will dance on their wedding night. And this is actually M. Knight's second longest scene across his entire filmography at 183 seconds, or second longest shot. Wow. Yeah, beaten by one shot in Unbreakable. That is 220-something seconds. 
similar to that, this is the third time in the movie that he has touched her. But the difference is that this is the first time that it's more, quote, of his own volition Mm -hmm. than trying to save her. Obviously, this connects to the hands motif. But additionally, this promise is ironic since the other two times they've touched are framed like dancing. The slow-mo with the music as he leads her down to the cellar and where the rest of the dance is going on and he sort of saves her from the commotion, it, it looks like they're just more of the dancing. So mm-hmm. the fact that these two are framed like dances and then he says, I will dance with you on our wedding night does sort of fit that triplicate again. And it just is really fantastic. And I love that long shot with the two of them. And, okay, George, have you read any Mammoth theory on filmmaking? I have not. Okay. So Mammoth is a big proponent of uninflected acting. You do everything through the edit. You show the actor, you show the thing he's looking at, and therefore you understand That does not leave room for beautiful moments such as this shot where Mm -hmm. these two actors work themselves to the edge of tears (laughs) just through their their dialogue back and forth. Right. And I think that that very strident kind of militant sort of look at how these things should be framed is it's so sad to me (laughs) because you miss out on you might be able to do mammoth stuff, you know, like I could understand reading his his words, how he would come to that theory of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, there's all of these matters of the heart and of acting that you just wouldn't get. And I think it's, it's really cool that uh, M night just lets this play. Definitely. And Kitty is fine with it. It turns out she, (laughs) she accepts that, that there is a different kind of love going on between the two of them. And it's wrong for one love to sacrifice another. Hell yeah, Kitty, MVP of the movie. (laughs) I also do think it's interesting, though, to sort of see how she matures throughout the entirety of the movie. You know, a lot of stuff happens from from the first time that we see our characters to the end of it. I think that she certainly grows up the most of anybody in this movie. For sure. Noah comes to talk with Lucius, and by talk, I mean stab. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out, and I mean, it was obvious that he was in love with Ivy, but like I said, it's that sort of puppy love that's reflective of Kitty's infatuation with Lucius. And Lucius collapses, and Noah isn't sure what to do, and then stabs him again. This moment, I truly could not believe this shit. <laughs> and it's it's just quiet. All you hear is, like, this, the squelching of that knife going in and coming back out and kind of the thump. And it's just like, Oh God, it's so there's something about stabbings, like a nice, slow, intimate stabbing like this, that really (laughs) is off putting in a movie, especially something like this. Like you don't expect that level of upsetting sort of violence. I don't think in this type of movie. Yeah. It really comes out of nowhere too, because I mean, they've sort of played down Noah's, violence you know we hear at the very beginning that he's hitting people but maybe this is our or at least my fault that you just go oh well what's he really gonna do you know (laughs) turns out he's gonna stab lucius (laughs) (laughs) but yeah his hands are covered in the bad color now and he starts to sob to his parents 
He's completely lost. He's imploding in on himself. He's reverting to his childlike last words of mama. Those are the last words that we hear him say. His portrayal on this porch here as he comes to grip with what he's done, I think is an excellent performance from Adrian Brody. You know, like I said, the character itself doesn't necessarily age perfectly, but working within the confines of that, I think Adrian Brody in this scene does a really great job of imbibing him with some humanity. And I think this was, if not the first, one of the first places that I would have seen Adrian Brody and that he really stuck out to me. Yeah. I mean, this was a year before King Kong. So yeah, I had seen a summer of Sam and thin red line. He does not stick out in thin red line to my knowledge. Summer of Sam, when I rewatched it, I love his storyline the most. Mm -hmm. And especially the Baba O'Reilly montage (laughs) that we get in the middle of that. That's a fantastic sequence. And, you know, he carries so much of that. But yeah, because I never saw The Pianist for reasons. There you go. Hey, not my favorite movie. Okay. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll do a quick digression to say... I don't think that Nazis deserve redemption arcs. <laughs> <laughs> Let me be controversial here and say. Yeah, and so when a, when a movie's crux boils down to, you know, through things like liking music, we're not so different, you and I, you Nazi. <laughs> no, I actually am very different from a Nazi, and, um, and I, I, cannot, I cannot endorse a movie where that is the moral. So... <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Take a stance, George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think Adrian Brody had a, he had a really good couple of years here. I like that Hollywood land movie that he was in in 2006 as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. The word gets out that this has happened and Ivy goes to check on Lucius. I love the sound design here as it sort of goes interior on her perspective with the hum and the counting. It's really great. And then when she accidentally like kicks him, <laughs> when she stumbles across him literally oh and uh, you know, he's there on death's door. It's sad. It's really a sad moment. She slaps the hell out of Noah who, who cries in the quiet room and then determinedly tells her father that she's got to go through the woods to get medicine for Lucius. Huge twist. I love this. And, you know, everyone knows that M. Night loves Hitchcock. This is not mm-hmm. a new observation. But in my opinion, this is psycho as hell, this main character shift. I think this is a really awesome rug pull in the same way that the rug pull of psycho works for me. Oh, for sure. And the idea that she has been set up as i mean she's blind in this era where there are so many helpful devices that she does not have right Right. like she purely lives by her wits and her cane and she is very capable but no one not even the very strong joaquin phoenix can go into the woods (laughs) so (laughs) why are we going to allow our precious daughter to do that Yeah. And it turns out the reason is because there's an infection. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the elders are hemming and hawing. No good can come without sacrifice, they say. That might mean never going back to town. That might mean the life of people like Daniel and like Lucius. But ultimately, he does give her permission to go. I love the speech that Ed gives Ivy about his father, her grandfather. It's really great delivery. But he walks her to the shed that is not to be used Truly, the names just crack me up. I like, I'm imagining like a cartographer trying to squeeze in the well from which water is drawn next to the shed that is not to be used. <laughs> but there's a huge emphasis on the door to this building 
uh, holding the village's truth contained within. Again, these doors is sort of the portal to the truth and everything. Do your best not to scream, Ed says. Cut two. Ivy heads into the woods. Little yellow riding hood out here. (laughs) I also really love her reintroduction. It's the same cinematography and blocking as the first time we meet her. And it's also a reversal of the blocking and cinematography of the first glimpse of Lucius in the yellow robe, who strides towards the camera and then turns to profile left, whereas she is sitting profile right and then turns to face the camera. And is she sitting at the the sitting rock? That's right. Is that the same? The resting rock, I'm sorry, yes. But once again, circular, back to where we first find out about the the bad color and about some of the danger. Yeah. Yeah. And it is really a bold move for a blind person to be leading the way, but she is leading with her brother-in-law and Finton going with her, and she has some magic rocks that will keep them safe. (laughs) Why haven't we heard about the magic rocks? Oh, yeah, exactly. Why haven't we heard about the magic rocks? Uh-huh. <laughs> and Kristoff is freaking out. He didn't even want his shirt wrinkled. No wonder he doesn't want to be out here. And Finton freaks out, too. Both of them, him and Ivy, replicating that same facing the camera profile framing, by the way, when they're mm-hmm. sitting underneath the little tent there. And they both ultimately leave Ivy all alone. And she dumps out the rocks. What? <laughs> <laughs> Flashback to the shed. What the heck? It's a speaky. (laughs) Ed reveals that the whole thing is just a farce, that they got these costumes and they use it to keep everyone in the village. The problem is someone has been going rogue and mutilating the animals. And we've seen that one of these figures is is much more distorted than a lot of the others. I also got to say that these guys really look like they're cousins of the saw pig guy. I don't know why everyone was dressing up as red cloaked pigmen in 2004. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was the it was the hot look. I was gonna say a new hot style was red cloaked yeah. pig man. There were rumors of creatures in these woods, so they just leaned into it. Forgive us our silly lies, Ivy. They were not meant to harm. And this, of course, brings up the question of can you shield your children from harm by lying to them? And of course, this is a slippery slope to becoming Amish monster people. <laughs> God. <laughs> Ed goes to Alice, and he says this was the only gift that he could give her, allowing her to go and try and save Lucius, which confirms that Lucius was right about his having feelings for her. And interestingly, this is, to me, the most interesting usage of the doors motif, because this moment has both a closed and an open door, which is to say that they are both like, well, we know it has to be a secret to everyone else, but at the very least, we can sort of reveal our love for each other to each other and have this moment that sort of the open and closed doors sort of cancel each other out in this uh, secret between two. Man, when he talks to the elders, too, I mean, William Hurt really fucking kills this movie. (laughs) Like, he is fucking amazing. It is too painful. I cannot bear it. (laughs) William Hurt is someone who... I'm just happy every time he's he's given a emphatic thing to say because he always he brings that he seems like he has much more gravitas than just your normal dude on the street, right? Yeah, he delivers this dialogue really impressively well. You know, the whole point is kind of that a lot of it sounds stilted, mm-hmm. but from coming from him 
And also Sigourney Weaver, I think, does a really great job with it. Yeah. They feel very natural at it. And maybe that's because they're supposed to be the elders. They've been doing it for a much longer time. But yeah, I just think that he he does a really fantastic job at, at delivering the important moments. And they ask, who will continue this? Who do you plan to live forever? He says when when they're like, we got to just let all the kids die. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, okay, good plan. What's the next step? (laughs) August Nicholson shrugs and he says, let her go. We can move towards hope, but you can't run from heartache, which basically is what he said earlier. His brother was killed in the towns, but the rest of his family died here. So now there's more grief here than there was there. Sorrow will find you. Right. And she is running towards hope, which it turns out is more of a slow, muddy walk through the woods. (laughs) And there's a pit. Yes. That looks like it fucking sucks. (laughs) I was going to say, it's it's a slow, muddy walk with one giant digression in it. (laughs) It certainly is. I also do want to call out, as far as the camera work goes, that it's interesting to me that when we had her two companions there, there were a lot of really striking close-ups. But Mm -hmm. now that they're gone, it's almost like we're sort of as blind as she is. We don't get these close-ups of her anymore. We have to just sort of deal with the wider perspective. And when we do get in close it's like of her feet kind of stumbling along the ground or of her hands brushing past things it's and it's um her sensory methods yeah it's it makes you kind of viscerally uncomfortable of like are you as blind as she is yeah yeah Uh, suddenly the voice of papa walker rings in her head there were rumors of creatures in the woods Uh (laughs) uh-oh Troubles pile up, her cane is snapped, and worst of all, there's a noise that's a callback to a piece of the lore that we hear in this this game that they were playing where they stand there, which is that the speakies imitate you before they attack. Mm-hmm. She starts running completely blind in the woods and winds up in a field of those berries of the bad color. She's completely surrounded and vulnerable to attack, and this is an escalation of the scene where Lucius stumbled across the berries with his yellow cloak and bared head. You know, it's a, it's a, a natural progression. There's a growl, and it is a freaking speaky, and so she retraces her step, uh, her steps and leads it to the pit. And there's a lot of the hand imagery here, not only her outstretched hands and back to the creature reflecting the game the boys played and a fearlessness, but also that fearlessness is also reinforced by Kitty's outstretched hands during her confession of love. We see that this is what people do when they're being <laughs> brave. <laughs> yes. They T-pose, essentially. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the falling into the pit but not dying, the finding the uprooted trees both times to lend her a landmark. It also calls back to the way Edward said the world moves for love. You know, the fact that all of these things work out just right. This actually does feel a little bit like signs where they're saying, you know, you can look for the miracles. You can say that this is nature moving to facilitate this love. Or you can say, wow, it's a coincidence, and I guess I'm all alone, and I'm out here by myself. <laughs> but I love it. It turns out it was Noah who, who had fallen in there and, and found one of the suits and gone rogue. And Noah's childlike love of games, combined with that lore that the creatures imitate you, explains a lot of the way it moved, and also, frankly, makes the falling into the pit its own kind of ironic imitation. Mm-hmm. The fact that he does it 
at full speed. I mean, earlier, it's really interesting that we get her running, racing down the hill, but she knows where she is. And then later, when she's on the path, she does the same kind of thing, the same kind of loping stride. But it, it she's always searching out safe holds for her feet, mm-hmm. whereas Noah is just running headlong. Right. <laughs> this, he doesn't have the the forbearance to maybe back off a little bit and think about things. He only has full steam ahead. I also love that now that we know it's Noah, this makes the previous scene a reflection of that foot race to resting rock from the very beginning. The sunny valley now replaced by bare trees and joy replaced by fear. It's a mirror image of it pretty perfectly. And he does die down there in the pit looking truly like a big bad wolf. And she continues her journey, finding the hidden road and then slamming into a big leafy wall. So up she goes. So, George, I wanted to ask you, because we brought this up earlier with those God's Eye View shots, right? And we have August at the beginning with his back to the camera. We have Lucius with his front to the camera. And here, when Noah dies, he's lying on his side, like in a fetal position. Mm. Is there any continuity to be gained from (laughs) from this observation or is it just cool staging (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i wonder because there i feel like there's got to be something there i don't know that i know what it is but the deliberate positioning of people being headlong facing into camera versus the profile Mm -hmm. it's it's too repeated and too deliberate to not mean something. It's almost to a level of like Ingmar Bergman, right? Where we have either straight on in profile or two profiles turned away from each other yeah. at different points. These oh yeah. The Alice striking, and Ed when they're out in the, yes. uh, like standing in front of the house. Oh my gosh. Yeah. These very striking compositions that utilize faces and bodies as part of the, of the tableau. Definitely. That I think like you said, I don't know if I can decode what he means, but I think that he had some sort of symbology tied in there for himself, at least. Definitely. And Ed pulls out his box of secrets. And what is a lid, if not another door? <laughs> <laughs> so he opens that up to the secrets within. And it has a photo of all the elders looking much younger at a modern counseling center wearing modern clothes, uh, although that is modern accounting for the passage of time since they got to the village, plus the fact that this ostensibly takes place in 2004. So it is now modern twice removed. (laughs) Yes. Modern circa 1978, maybe. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it turns out that Ed taught at UPenn right dang around the corner from me. (laughs) (laughs) and he wanted to discuss an idea the avengers initiative except they're all the punisher (laughs) just kidding he wants them all to live on this crazy village is is there something that's the opposite of the punisher people who (laughs) literally run away from their traumas (laughs) some might say that's still the punisher Ooh, (laughs) nicely called yeah yeah But a Walker Nature Preserve ranger finds Ivy scaling the wall. I love this. The fact that this friggin' billionaire boy set this all up. He friggin' did it. What a a rascal that Ed is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm from the woods, she says. Please help. And he hesitates, but takes a look. And he says, what the hell? You living there? 
<laughs> says security guard Kevin. <laughs> it's an interesting return to what we would consider normalcy, not only for the character, but also for the movie where things slow down and we get some traditional like shot reverse shot stuff that is not typical for the rest of the movie at all. Mm-hmm. And I think this does really help to distinctify them as being from two different worlds because they're not sharing frames. Additionally, the preceding 15 minutes are extremely minimalist in dialogue, which is a notable counterpoint to the florid verbosity of the rest of the movie, and then now her being able to talk to Kevin again. The the striking difference between Kevin's actual modern language and her faux old-timey language, which... You know, I would have to check and actually see what it should have been in 1890s. Right. But, like, I have... Okay, keep going. I have so many questions, though. Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) let's keep going. Maintain and protect the border. That's the extent of our cushy gig, says the guard at the desk, a.k.a. M. Knight himself. (laughs) Very fun that you can see him in the reflection of the fridge. And like I said, you can also hear the radio discussing the chaos and death of the Iraq war, which is, of course, exactly the kind of fear-driven modern violence that the village was hiding from. And apparently a few years back, it even got out in the papers that the estate was paying the government to keep flight paths away from the preserve, too. That was a stressful time for him. (laughs) But Kevin smuggles Ivy the meds because, as Edward said, she is led by love and the world moves for love. Like I said... Very earnest filmmaker. Like, yeah. Oh, what a romantic, this guy. Yes. She treks back through the woods, and the elders discuss that Noah has made their stories real and can continue the village. Wow. Ivy also holds the injured Lucius's hand, although his face isn't visible, which is a trend since Ivy took over as protagonist. So we have to rely on things besides sight to know that he's there, which also really drives home this hand motif right at the end, their connection still holding strong. And the credits give us some fun photos of the elders starting the village. I, I, I like that uh, as a nice little touch. You know, it didn't have to be there. Hey, here's our little flashback, like, of all the fun <laughs> times we had coming out here where we had to dig wells, I guess, <laughs> and build our own houses, and then our children all died. Yeah. And I think this is really great, especially because I think it leaves plenty of ambiguity as to what's next. Because although he talks about a preserve and a guard shack, Kevin never answers Ivy about the cause of the siren. And there's never really any indication that she notices the outside is in another time period. Mm -hmm. Additionally, she doesn't seem to have been able to see Noah's color when he was playing hide and seek inside. So does she know that he was the one who was the creature? And finally... My last bit of ambiguity that I really enjoyed here is will using this medicine tempt them into chancing contact once again? Is this the beginning of the end? That was my big question that I had a minute ago is now that this barrier has been breached, how much easier is it to breach the next time and the next time? And if you saved his son, if you saved her lover, why isn't my lover good enough? Why isn't my child good enough? Like you, you'd have to consider that. Right. Yeah. And the idea, it's a lot easier to go without the whole time than to have something and have it taken away. Oh, for sure. And so now that they have this medicine and they're like, well, I guess we ration it forever. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's just not feasible. It's just not feasible. And so I think it does tie interestingly into the fact that she might not know that it's another time period out there. Also, Kevin is like, he's eyeballing those woods. He's like, I don't know what the hell's going on. Maybe he'll explore the woods. Maybe he'll find, like, truly, the the people are like, oh, this is a dumb ending because it's like she just does it and gets back to the village. But not only is one person's life at stake now, but the whole village is at stake now. Yes. And what does this mean for the people within it? I think it does such a great job of opening it up beyond the scope of the movie right at the end. It's so great. I think the idea of people living in an intentional community that have cut themselves off in any way, shape, or form from the outside, it is fascinating, but you can't help but think of other instances in real life when this has happened, you know, or when people have lived on communes, different things like that. Even hell, Jared Leto's followers (laughs) who didn't know that COVID was happening right at the beginning, all of these things, they tie together. And, you know, you wonder about like humanity in this microcosm that they represent now. And what do you do if you're given all the tools? It's, also very similar to the Twilight Zone story, 100 Yards Over the Ridge, where a character, very similar, there's someone sick on the wagon train, he's going to go and try to scope out the next town, and when he goes over the ridge, it's modern day, and then he goes back, but he can only make one trip. Right. So that portion of it's cut off, but it does, you know, you get the idea that it helped set the, the fortunes of that whole wagon train changed because of what happened there. Yeah. Do they decide to tell the children the secrets? Like, you have to at some point. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to fall into chaos the, the next generation down. Yeah. At some point, if no one knows that there is, like, that the elders were the creatures, then they will just stop being creatures at some point. Yes. <laughs> They're going to throw, uh, you know, half of a pig into the woods and no <laughs> one's going to go pick it up. Yeah. She's going to rot. Yeah. Just be a gross pig. and now josh we've i think we've we've talked uh, the whole time about what makes this movie so interesting and so great Mm -hmm. but now we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why it's not just so good and so great but why it is in fact the best horror movie ever made i'm gonna let you start okay i think everything about this film the the casting the the i don't want to use the word elevated so early in my pitch but the elevated feel of it, the score, the very classy score that's brought onto it, makes this movie ahead of its time. And I think if it came out now, people would respect it a lot more because, or maybe a couple years ago, it would have been in the pocket of quote unquote elevated horror mm-hmm. and it would be seen as something that's dealing with generational trauma rather than just a movie with a twist. Sure. It would have been seen as a horror movie with something to say about how we live our lives today, not just, uh, it's fake old-timey, big deal, you know? So I think that because this movie is so under-respected and because the director himself got such a pile on, it was even more neglected that it should get a reappraisal a reevaluation, and more people will then realize that it is indeed the best horror movie ever made. Absolutely. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because 
Not only is the cast outrageous, not only is the setting a lot of fun and really well put together, not only does Freaky Deaky kill it on the cinematography, (laughs) but also this is the best horror movie ever made because of the very intense fable elements. Not only textually, with legends being used to control the villagers, but additionally, the movie itself as a modern fable a way to communicate a morality tale through entertainment, much the way that the fables have since their inception. Not the first time that tropey horror movies with broad characters being a morality play to curb behavior has come up, but this takes that thought and then brings it to another level, incorporates it into the story itself, blends things like Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf into it, things that will call out to us, that will serve as a connection point, a tether for us to the fables that we already know. And this lets us question society as the elders and our scaring people to get them to act how we want. Is that sustainable? Is slasher movies saying, don't have sex and don't do drugs, Does that replace parenting? (laughs) Clearly, this movie seems to think otherwise. It's not a sustainable thing. The illusion will come crumbling down. And you cannot run from sorrow. You need to face things head on. I just think that it does such a great job. It has so much to say. The performances knock it out of the park. Every aspect of this movie is just firing at 100. And it's the best horror movie ever made. There we go. Yay. (laughs) See, was that so hard? It wasn't so hard. Josh, (laughs) I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. Please tell the people where they can find you. You can find me on uh, my other show, Nashville CA, or uh, the soon-to-be-released Stagecoach Justice. Wow. Where me and my friends Eli and Andrew, fellow filmmakers from here in Nashville, are trying to give a more scholarly look at the Western and its influences down through the years. But we keep it light. There is a fart joke within the first (laughs) 10 seconds of the cold open. So we try to have a nice mixture of things. But that will be Stagecoach Justice coming out out probably in the next couple weeks so wow well very excited for that i'm sure it'll be a whole lot of fun and i know for a fact that nashville ca is a whole lot of fun i have been on it myself to talk about the two documentaries american movie and harlan county usa but in addition to that the show is just great i listen to it all the time i love hearing the double features and why you guys think that they work well together and it's i have forced myself to check out movies that i had not seen (laughs) and usually i like them so there we go. Good. That's the whole point. That's the whole point, folks. Bring the so, love. So check out Nashville CA. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Letterboxd and Instagram. Shoot, it's everywhere. What else? You, it also extends to the Patreon, where you can find bonus episodes for just a couple bucks a month. We've covered all kinds of stuff, like EC Comics, the history of the, the Tales from the Crypt and all that stuff. We also are uh, just releasing a commentary for Alligator the 1980 movie with Robert Forster, which I love very much. And my hope is that those will become an addition and not a replacement for the bonus episodes for the Patreon. So so people can hopefully be getting two things a month instead of just the one bonus episode, because wouldn't that be great? Uh, <laughs> so so check that out. There's a lot of great stuff on there already. So, uh, so yeah, check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. Oh, rate and review too. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. That's the one we always forget to do. I always forget it. Also, I always forget to say that there is a mailbag that people can email bestlittlemailbag at gmail.com. And every now and then I do a mailbag episode, but I always forget to plug that. And so usually I scramble for for questions right at the end. (laughs) Um, So if you feel like you have a question, feel free to send that in. Okay, that's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.